Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that the Steroid is CEO podcast has joined forces with Future Commerce, the number one podcast in e-commerce. We're combining forces to bring you the most insightful and relevant content in the world of tech and entrepreneurship. We're launching new content every week starting in July, and I don't want you to miss it. So subscribe to Steroid CEO right now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and let's take your business to the next level. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today we have a really great show for you, an interview with Jessica Hawthorne, the CEO of Hawthorne Advertising. As a leading technology and data-driven advertising agency, Hawthorne Advertising specializes in integrated campaign solutions for brands. As CEO, Jessica has prioritized company culture and has received numerous awards for her career accomplishments, most recently winning the CEO of the Year Award for Technology-Based Advertising by Corporate Livewire. In this episode, Jessica shares with us her incredible journey and what it takes to be an award-winning CEO. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Jessica. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me today, Lee. <laughs> I'm excited to chat with you about your incredible journey in becoming an award-winning CEO. Um, to get things started, first off, Jessica, my first name is actually Jessica. Really? So, and you were the first Jessica on the show. Oh, wow. Welcome. <laughs> Love that. In, yeah. good, in good company. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Two Jessicas at the table right now. Um, so first I'd like to start off with your childhood, where you're from. Did you have any siblings? What did your parents do? That kind of stuff. Very good. Absolutely. Uh, this will sound a little bit like a book, but I grew up in a small town in the Midwest <laughs> and made it to the big city in Los Angeles. Amazing. Uh, no, but I, um, I, I was born on the East coast in uh, Philadelphia, lived in LA for a second, but, uh, I actually did grow up in the Midwest. I basically went to school there, kindergarten through 12th grade. And as I was mentioning to you earlier, it's a bit of a unique background. We moved there because I attended a prep school there that had a basis in transcendental meditation. Yeah, so, it's incredible. Where in the Midwest were you? It's a uh, small town called Fairfield, Iowa. Wow. And uh, TM these days is just a practice. It's not, it doesn't have any religious affiliation. You know, these days, folks like Ellen DeGeneres, Oprah, Beatles back in the day practice this. And so a lot of the people who moved to uh, this town in Iowa, where the TM movement bought a university there, people moved all across the country to send their kids to this school there. And so they're actually metropolitan people coming from all over the country to this small town in Iowa, which wow. made for a very unique environment. 
And yeah, it was part of the practice uh, twice a day. And then in between, obviously, we had our prep school curriculum. And uh, I also studied languages like French, but then also Sanskrit. Wow. <laughs> and I would be taking calculus while relating it to like Vedic uh, philosophies and universal movements of uh, the planets and things like that. So wow. it was definitely a unique background. And also in an age at that time where things like mindfulness and meditation are more uh, common these days, but back then people really didn't talk about it. So, yeah. And so, I didn't even know what that was as a child. Right. I had no clue. I think I started learning about meditation when I was like 20 years old when I first moved to New York. Yes, you know? So exactly. it's really amazing that you learned that at such an early age. What would you, can you explain more about what TM is and that type of meditation? What makes it different than others? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very simple practice and uh, you learn it from a TM teacher and it's a one-time that you learn it, but you can always go back at any point uh, in your life to have checkings and things like that. It is uh base, there's no concentration or like getting uh, thoughts out of your mind. It's a simple technique, individual mantras that people are given. And it really just helps clear stress, helps increase intelligence. There's been thousands of scientific studies to show how it promotes uh, human brain development. Very cool. So you had an excellent education early on. And so you said you were there till 12th grade? I was, yeah. And then I do appreciate growing up in the Midwest and the values uh, that obviously I got from the uh, Midwest and the work ethic that comes from that. And then also the unique environment that I had with the school and the background. But I definitely was more of a California girl. So I packed my bags and uh, headed out west to uh, uh, UCLA because we did live in California when I was very young and I had fond memories of it. So went to UCLA and I feel like my first days... I, I was like on the set of the movie, like 90210, I'd be walking down the Bruin Woods, the walk there, and like music was playing, everyone was like happy and singing. It was definitely a really amazing experience. I, I love my college experience. That's awesome. And so your parents, what did they do? Were they in the business world? Yeah. Uh, so they actually were both in the entertainment industry and kind of artists themselves. Back in the day, they actually met as TM teachers. Yeah, in Minneapolis. And that's how they met. And then I came along and then eventually then when we moved to Iowa, but my mom was a computer graphics artist, did some of the first computer graphics that ever existed on like a system called Dubner system. And when we lived out here in LA, she worked on the 1984 Olympics wow. and did some of the first graphics packages that were there. And my father a uh, very smart man. He uh Harvard grad and uh, was a documentary filmmaker. And he's still to this day a, a guild director. And he did some of the first documentaries, but also reality shows like Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, Real People, things like that. And oh. when we moved to Iowa, it's a bit of a move and yeah. not a lot of business there. Yes. Many things are born out of necessity. Many entrepreneurial paths are born out of necessity. So with that, my my father actually had to figure out what to do when we moved to Iowa, and he ran across a, a gentleman that had a real estate product, and this is also in the early uh, 80s, again, when the president at the time, Reagan, was deregulating a lot of the industries like the airline industry. He also deregulated television airtime, and so my father had the idea to put package this real estate product, and so he was like the pitch person. He was obviously the camera guy, shot it, edited it. And wrote the whole thing. 
And then he uh, put it all together, edited it, and contacted the television stations, letting them know. It was basically like a small documentary on this Mm -hmm. real estate product, but it was selling it. And so he contacted the TV stations himself saying, I want to purchase the airtime as an individual. And they said they had no idea that it even existed because before it was just uh, commercial spot time that you could purchase. Mm -hmm. He said, well, if I have a half hour, they said they don't even know how to price it. So he came up with a approach to purchasing, looking at, well, if you get this many eyeballs, which is TRP, uh, your total ratings point on a a 15 second spot or 30 second spot for a 30 minute commercial, it would be about this price. So he actually bought the airtime. Mm. And then from there is basically considered the founder or the father of the infomercial. Really? Yes. That's amazing. So he had that first product and it was a huge success because obviously no one also knew what was coming at them at that time. So it was like this kind of runaway hit. But he took that and decided to open, which is at the time was Hawthorne Communications and now is Hawthorne Direct, but the first advertising agency that specialized and now it's known as direct response television. So that was the initial uh, founding of uh, the current company, the agency nearly 35 years ago. Wow. And so do you have any siblings? I do not. Oh, only child. <laughs> I'm an only child. <laughs> awesome. Been uh, very independent as a result. Yeah. <laughs> so you went to UCLA. Yes. Uh-huh. And you studied. What did you graduate with? Yeah, I went to UCLA, and the natural background that really our whole family had was anything to do with was with filmmaking, art, business. So. I applied, obviously, to a number of schools, and when I did, uh, I had a variety of uh, majors that I had selected. Uh, So some were business, some were to some film schools, and uh, I had actually forgotten when I had applied to UCLA, I had checked the fine arts box, the application, and I did submit, obviously, a portfolio and all of that, and so I got accepted to the art school at UCLA, and which is very prestigious. So mm-hmm. I accepted to attend there and uh, I loved it. So my undergrad was actually in fine art at UCLA. Awesome. Very cool. And so did you have any jobs while you were attending college or internships? Yes. I have always worked my whole life. And that is something that wasn't even ever uh, pushed upon me. It was innate. Yeah. Even back in high school, it was as jobs as uh, simple as being a lifeguard or... Uh, Were you yeah. a lifeguard? Of course, yes. Me too. Oh, yes, CPR. We've all, we've all done that, right? Yeah. yeah. Good wage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. And, and then some initial jobs at UCLA were even just working for the newspaper there, the Daily Bruin, I believe. And I actually developed the film, like back when actually there was film, like 35 millimeter film. But then probably in my sophomore year, I started looking pretty aggressively at internships. At the time, my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, he helped me do my resume. (laughs) And we got in our car and drove up and down Sunset Boulevard. And I was like handing out my resume. So from there, I had a variety of jobs or free internships, because at that time, they were definitely all unpaid, which is not the case (laughs) now. But I was just happy to work and get the experience and none of it mattered. So I did everything from film production, um, music video production, computer graphics, editing, 
And so this is all while I was at school at UCLA. I was doing these internships because while I really enjoyed my major, which was being a fine artist, I was also a realist. So I, I knew I was like, I'm good, but I'm not great. Like my, I'm definitely always call it like it is. So you're like, I love art. It's yeah. fun. I'm not a pro. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so one of the music video companies that I work for, uh, I work for this director called Billy Woodruff, who back in the day had done movies like Honey and things like that. And I was editing this uh, Tony Braxton video. And um, I was great at it. But actually the gentleman there who I worked with was actually the person who suggested to me, because this is not something that you would necessarily know unless you like lived in LA or had family associated or insider track. And they say, he said, have you ever thought about becoming a talent agent? <laughs> and I thought a talent agent, but it really did intrigue me because it seemed to fit so well in terms of the business side, which I was always just very innate in me and everything I did, but also really deeply understanding like artists and their visions and what they could do. I knew that I could represent artists and uh, or creatives of any sort and help them continue to reach their uh, dreams. When I graduated or before I was graduating from UCLA near the end, I started, I worked at one small agency while I was still in school. And then when I was uh, looking to graduate, I, interv or I interviewed and applied to all the big agencies and I accepted a job uh, when I graduated at a firm, which was then called just Endeavor. And now it's uh, William Morris Endeavor, WME. Yeah. yeah, no big deal or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a talent agent there? Yes, I was technically a television literary agent. And again, when I go into anything, I go 150%. So I, I was reading the the books like Michael Ovitz's book, like The Art of War, things like that. I was like, I got this, right? So I went in and uh, went initially into the agent trainee program, um, started out on the film side, and then eventually moved over to the uh, television side. And so I became a television literary agent while I was at Endeavor. And what exactly is that? So all the TV shows on either network or cable at this point, they're all comprised of not only the talent, the actors that are on the show, but really the engine behind it um, are all the writers, the the showrunners who create the show, the uh, directors, the producers. So uh, as a television literary agent, I represented the writers, directors, and producers of the TV shows. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I just want to, I've come from the biz a little bit. I, I know what that one is, but for the listeners who don't know some of these terms, right. it's fun to recap on what the terminology is. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I and a little uh, one fun fact yeah. is that while I was coming up being an agent, you kind of work on different agents' desks. At one point, I worked for a gentleman named Ari Emanuel, who was the character uh, that was based on him was Ari from Entourage. Mm -hmm. And while I worked as an assistant for Ari, I knew all the guys who were the real life characters of Entourage. They were all real people. And so when I became an agent, I ended up uh, representing a number of them as like writers or producers. And uh, there may or may not have been a character based on me the first season. Uh oh, <laughs> we have to go check it out. Yeah. <laughs> it was a blonde assistant before Lloyd came around, who was, who was Ari's other assistant. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I have to go back and check it out. Right, right. <laughs> 
Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. So what are some of the things that you learned in these kind of first few jobs that you had that you've carried into your current role? Yeah, absolutely. So the in the agency world, definitely the work ethic is just off the charts. Half of that is also because it is so highly competitive and everyone is basically trying to live their Hollywood dream. So uh, I actually came in, it's funny, it, it, Hollywood is typically known for its relationships and your work and your how you get promoted through life is, is usually based on your relationships and less on uh, merit. And that was a little bit, that, that was not, that's not where I come from and that's not how I feel. And so I actually never wanted to get a job or have an experience that anyone handed to me mm -hmm. and that I always wanted to do it myself. I never wanted to owe anyone anything ever, mm -hmm. which is the complete opposite of how, how Hollywood and a lot of this works. So I remember even coming into the initial interview to be an agent and I, or to be an assistant at the agency, then to work my way towards it being an agent. I came in with my black portfolio, right? Like the, with my resume in there and my suit and everything. And, uh, like very serious, like in my, of course, my resume was uh, a couple pages long because of all the internships I had while I was at school. This is like my work ethic and my uh, Midwest roots. And uh, they literally almost laughed me out of the room. Oh my God. <laughs> They're like, like, who do you know? Right. That's all they mattered. Like I was so overqualified for the job at that point. So uh, I of course got the job, but, but so, they were assuming that you knew someone. Yeah. And yeah. You didn't. Right. Right. Like. To, right. I didn't know. Yeah. And to be this serious about it, to actually have a resume and not just be like, so-and-so knows you and that's how you got in the door uh, is very unusual. That is really personifies how I've always been throughout my career. And I think every, everyone approaches things uh, differently. But for me, it has always been based on the work. And it's not even necessarily competing like with other people. But I just my work ethic is just been always been so strong. And honestly, it's a very easy for me to work too. Like I love work and working. And so uh, it was just a natural path that I always have. So, you know, it, it was easy for me to even succeed at the agency because I work so hard. And uh, I always knew the relationships to build too that in terms of going uh, more towards the top of the line. So even these days, it's networking with the the higher ups, the partners or the board members or whatever it might be. And, you know, I also, besides becoming an agent pretty quickly there at Endeavor, working my way up the ranks, I was so passionate about the clients and helping them because I obviously knew them from their artistic background and wanting them to succeed. So that was a little unique too. Uh, because sometimes it's more, you know, transactional. But for me, it was because of my investment in the clients 
and them as people and how I wanted to get them jobs to yeah. help them in their personal life. Yeah. But that yeah, go on. Oh, no, I was just going to ask, what did you experience any, what were some of your biggest challenges? What mistakes did you make along the way? This is your first job right out of college. Right. Got to be a ton of mistakes that you make and everybody does in their first job. So right. what were some of the things that you did or maybe name one thing that you really learned from? Yeah, I do also remember from still one of the agents, sorry, that I work for that it was great advice and I still use it to this this day that he said, he was actually yelling at me, of course, when he said it at the time, <laughs> but, he, but he was like, there will always be mistakes. And he used some language in there though, too. There will always be like blank ups, but it's not the mistakes. It's how you handle it. And it's the solutions you bring to the table. And, and still to this day, that's even the, the strongest piece of advice. And what, what I take with my teams currently is that we are always going to have problems in life, personal life, work life, whatever it is. Nothing is ever easy, but it is how you come and approach everything in a way that you're coming to fix it. You're coming with solutions instead of just coming with complaints. And I'm always looking how to improve things to make things better every day. Nothing is ever set you know, is like, this is the way to do it, unchangeable. I always think there's a better way to do it. And I'm always open and uh, eager to hear people's feedback. But if it's only complaints or it's a problem with no solution, like that's not going to work. So it's here's the, the suggestions, here's what we can do. And then we can discuss it and figure out the best path to move forward. Yeah. Until we get to the next <laughs> roadblock, right? Exactly. Yeah. Hurdle. Yes. <laughs> so what happened after that? When did, how did things go? Yeah. How long were you there? And then what was next? Yeah, I was there uh, about seven years. And I then had the, I was very successful. I love my clients. I really love coming up the ranks as an assistant as well, because you had access to all the parties, all the fun, without kind of everything else that went along with it once you became an agent. And then, you know, once I became a, an agent, it was I love my clients, but I was also looking around, well, what else is there? And around that same time, then we'll do a sidestep that I had briefly mentioned that my father had started this advertising agency. We had never planned to work together. It was never in the cards. And maybe even part of that was because I never wanted to just owe anything to anyone or ever be handed it. Like I didn't, I never expected that's how life works. And if anything, he might've thought that he would drop this whole ad agency thing and then go back to being a big Hollywood director and I would represent him. I think that's how we <laughs> thought it would go. Around that time, I had other people with an advertising agency start to uh, approach me because they were looking at this company, uh, Hawthorne, and at that time it was maybe 20 years old, that the company was 20 years old. And they were looking for what is the next generation of the advertising agency look like, you know, because companies always have to reinvent themselves and, you know, be on the, the cutting edge of what's going on. And so it was, wasn't my father who brought it up. It was other people who basically approached me and recruited me to come into the ad agency. And I, I decided that, I would uh, take the opportunity. And it was a good move and transition at the time. And I came into the ad agency and started representing the clients. And it was an interest. So, so it didn't really necessarily make sense. I couldn't have planned it before. But representing individuals, that is uh, writers, directors, producers for TV, 
And then I basically came over the ad agency and started representing the brands, the companies as a whole. And that I found it was unexpected, but I just loved it. So I loved being a part of this larger corporate culture and the clients that the agency had. And it was, they were corporate America, like such nice, normal people, right? Mm-hmm. But they also get to be on the creative side. So it's great. It's like the business aspect, good Midwesterners or people from across the country, you're representing these brands, but they also have a creative outlet. You're building their uh, campaigns and helping to build their businesses. And I found I, I loved it. And it was very unexpected, to be honest, because I always knew I was really good at work, but I didn't actually think that the old fable, the old uh, fable, like you love what you do and you never did work a day in your life. Right. So I didn't really think that that was ever possible or true. And so I kind of actually ended up falling into that. That's crazy. So correct me if I'm wrong. So it sounds like employees of your dad's company were the ones recruiting you. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) (laughs) When did you start having that conversation with your dad? Oh, I don't I mean, I think he probably became aware of it. And then we both reluctantly were like, I don't know, should we, shouldn't yeah. we? And and then we decided to give it a shot. But I, I never actually directly worked for him. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had other uh, people within the company that I always work for. So the role that you started in was um, working mostly with brands. And as you mentioned, you said something funny that kind of resonates because I come from the fashion kind of entertainment world. So I totally know what you mean, but I want to hear from you. The difference between this kind of creative business, normal person that you're referring to, and probably the Hollywood creative, maybe a little bit more, what, how would you describe the difference? Oh, that's a good question. It, so I guess I get this, the major difference would be is that a, it, it was surprising to me that normal corporate America brand people didn't all have assistants or multiple assistants. So they were just doers. They did everything themselves. And then whereas the Hollywood culture has become this like assistance level of like status and power. So Mm -hmm. the more you have, the more. So it was, that's basically, it's just like people who do their work, you know, and putting on a more of a facade. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So what were some of the things that you, I guess the challenges that you faced in that first kind of role at working at Hawthorne? And then how did you kind of grow professionally throughout? Yeah, I came into the advertising agency. And like I said, first I came on the account management side, the client side. There were definitely some shifts and I started taking over the client communication because the the advertising agency has we have a lot of different components to it. We did back then. So you have creative, you have media, you have data. Now we have data analytics. So you create a media. So all these different departments. And I basically had to create our uh, formal account management department from scratch. And meaning I said, okay, no one is allowed to talk to the clients anymore, but me basically. <laughs> and I'm like, cause you may have 15 people talking to a client, like that's not working. Yeah. And we're just, anyway, so I, I have, very strong uh, organizational abilities. So I, I centered and organized all the communication, the approach to the client. So it was like one voice, one direction, one recommendation with all the campaigns and um, took that over and then worked with the clients for, for many years. And then 
at one point went back to get my MBA part-time while I obviously continue to work at the agency full-time. And that was just because I wanted to do it. It was just something that came over me that I just wanted to do. And maybe also because I had only technically the fine arts degree, even though I had this, you know, a strong innate business sense. So it was good just to sharpen all those skills and have the credentials behind you. And so once then I had an uh, MBA, then I transitioned naturally within the agency to both client services and representation, but also spent half my time kind of the employees and the company was like, I considered my client representing the client. So the operations side. So I feel like by operations of a company, you are representing a company and the uh, employees. And so I was doing both. And then I came up with our mission and our vision and our strategy and our yearly planning. And no one asked me to do that. I just started doing those things. And, and then from there, it was, it, it definitely accelerated. Then I became, then I started just fully, solely focusing on operations because I had built out the rest of the account management department. I had refocused the kind of direction of the agency and our client base and started deeply investing in our data analytics. And then I became uh, chief operating officer and then uh, CEO. And then I bought the agency several years back from my father. Wow. Yeah. So he is having a lovely time in New Zealand <laughs> and back to his, the art of his film Wow. and uh, making films uh, out there in New Zealand. Because I was going to ask, when you're in business with family, how, when you're spending time as a family, how do you separate that conversation of work versus, right, right. you know, to keep your personal life and relationship going as well. Yeah. That balance can be really tough. Yeah, that's a good question. For us, actually, it wasn't that hard uh, because a lot of it was business related, our conversations. And also, you know, I think my father always innately knew that I always had his best interests of heart and the entire company. So everything I was doing was protecting um, the agency and the clients and yeah, it was, it, he always actually lived in a different location too. And like I said, we actually never directly worked together. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of did my own thing. He get updates, he'd be copied on emails and yeah. it was pretty uh, smooth sailing. And plus I'm, I'm an only child, so it's small family. And I, I never, going back to the, never expecting or wanting anything from anyone. We didn't really even have that perception or issues even within the company in terms of, I was coming in to take over it, or it was something that was, you know, given to me because I just came in and I just always worked harder than everyone else. Yeah. Uh, when I, even when I was at the talent agency or when I became into the ad agency. So it started like this, like pace that people had to try to start to keep up with. And uh, it was just a kind of a, a natural uh, progression. Yeah. That's amazing. So now that you're CEO, Tell us about one of your most challenging moments and how you overcame it. I think I have been on a quest, I would say, (laughs) of what you might call operational excellence. And I, I think for any company, but especially a company that is now 35 years old and at that point, you know, is 20, 25 years old and 30 years old, it is a challenge to 
not only reinvent yourself every day, and we have one of the more highly competitive, fast-changing markets in terms of advertising, marketing, and data analytics, things like that, um, but also we have employees in every single age demographic. Uh, I have an office in uh, Los Angeles and Midwest, and I have uh, folks across the country that is different. Uh, those are different cultures. And I know all those cultures innately because I have lived and from those different locations, but be becoming uh, one with one united voice and uh, knowing what motivates people differently mm -hmm. and having operations and, and workflows and practices that you know work for everyone. And we have 17 different departments. We do everything all under one roof. It's a lot of moving parts. And in order to do that, I've definitely tried a lot of different things. I mentioned, mm -hmm. you just keep trying and trying one thing after another. I think that at one point or many points, probably folks would have what you would call consultant fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> so I would bring in one consultant after another. We would try this practice or that. The people can get tired of that. But I, I finally recently stumbled on an operating platform uh, called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating Platform, that is really spreading like wildfire across the country. And it's been a game changer in terms of really streamlining and bringing all the operational practices that I already, I always had in different forms, but one cohesive way to look at it and then have a weekly practice, uh, monthly, quarterly practice of keeping people on the same page and moving towards our goals. So yeah, it's it's like been moving the, the Titanic, you know? <laughs> yeah. oh. You mentioned motivating employees yes. and that's super important. Can you speak to some of the ways that you've been able to motivate your team and also how people are motivated differently? So what are the different maybe types of ways to motivate different types of people? Yeah. Um, like a creative person might be more motivated, obviously, by the work, by the being able to work on uh, certain projects and mediums. Media or numbers people might be more driven to metrics. Fundamentally, what is important within our culture and succeeding here is that it's not about the individual. It's about the client's best interest. And if we are growing their company and their campaign as a result, then we're all growing together. And so we really invest every one of their dollars. And a lot of that is this Midwest kind of work ethic where we came from where we feel that you should you should literally have a return on investment for every dollar in media that you invest in a company and in a media campaign. And so we're just beholden to the metrics, driving growing businesses as a result of our media creative campaigns and the data analytics is what connects all of that. But so this like larger goal of uh, client service and, you know, client growth as the, the ultimate company mission, but then also doing great work for great companies. And we have a lot of employee perks. I, it's really important to me people that people work very hard, but that they have a lot of fun and enjoy what they're doing because we're spending more time at work than really any other parts of our life. So we want to enjoy what we're doing. Uh, so we have lots of different parties and events, obviously. It's really proud of being, you know, a great place to work, like a certified great place to work. And that's like the benefits and the, uh, the perks and the things that we provide to our employees. And we have a community causes committee where we 
everyone has different charities or causes that they want to get back to in the company and invest in those, but everyone can be a part of that. We not only do we financially give, but we have full days where the whole staff chooses where they want to donate their time or their energy. And and then we also have clients that are uh, nonprofits that we work with and help their campaigns. And then we also participate in their causes. So uh, this this culture of community and giving back, and then also really that the work in growing our companies, our, our clients' companies, so that they're thriving is really at the, the core of, I think, what drives all of us. Awesome. So looking back on your career, what's something you wish you would have known? What I really always wish I would have known is that I have a crystal ball to tell me exactly how everything's going to be and it's going to work out. <laughs> you know, and then you're only really knowing that in retrospect that I think it's people always say, enjoy the journey more as you go along. And I think that is always would try to do that. But it's not always realistic that because you really until you get on the other end of something and know it was okay that you got through it it's hard to enjoy it sometimes as you're going because you're just head down trying to survive so again if I knew it was going to be okay and all the hard work would have paid off I probably would have enjoyed it more (laughs) instead of stressing out so much but but yeah that that would always be the goal I think I've definitely come more I'm living in that space now but it is because I have worked so hard for so long and now really streamline things and and optimize things that it, you know, would just continue to have the success and the growth year over year. But it is because of that hard work. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes you just can't get over a place that you've been until you're past it. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's nothing you can do or process in that time. You just have to get past it. Yeah. (laughs) Keep on moving forward. Right. What's the biggest thing you've learned about being a leader? I would say... What does it take to be a successful leader? Yeah. Well, for me, the people are everything. And I really don't, it's not one person who is uh, doing it on their own or taking credit. It is everyone that is uh, responsible for the success of a company or anything. So it's the people that you surround yourself with are absolutely critical. Yeah. And side note with that, it's really you have to have a strong HR uh, support and team. And that person should uh, also have a, a seat at your executive table because people are everything. And even as we're going more towards machine learning and, you know, artificial intelligence at some point. Right now, it's still the people doing the work to even build those uh, machine algorithms or things like that. And you have to have uh, great people uh, who do good work, who want to be there, who are all rowing in the same direction. And that takes a while to to figure out. And you have to have a good uh, teammate as a CEO uh, or an executive team to make sure, again, that you guys are all on the same page, everyone is uh, moving forward, and they're all also wanting to grow uh, personally and professionally every day. Yeah. So how do you actually, on that note, how do you work to improve yourself so that you can best lead the company? Yeah. That is just something innate that I do every day and push myself to do. It started actually probably when I was on, well, I mean, I guess I was always a 
a natural learner. So I got my MBA on my own. Right. And then after that, I started joining organizations that would facilitate and help push that. So when I was on the operations side, I originally joined a, a organization called Vistage and it focused a lot. It was a bunch of collection of uh, CEOs and operators in the, in the tens of thousands throughout the world and really helped me focus on like core operations and they always had speakers who come in. So it was always a learning experience. And then from there, I joined, I mean, so I've probably now become an over joiner. So now I'm a part of every organization and board <laughs> and whatever it is. And then from there, now I'm part of a, a worldwide organization called YPO, which is a president's organization. And that's a group of large uh, scale business owners. And at the root of that organization is always personal professional growth too. So that's naturally what I'm doing. And I really also encourage that with my team as well, for them to join organization, for them to have personal development, because I see that those who do focus on personal and professional development are, are those who keep coming along with you on the ride and, yeah. and help uh, drive the growth of the company and what you're doing. Definitely. Constantly learning is the way to go. So you are an award-winning CEO. What I know you've won a ton of awards, but what are some of the, tell us about a few of the most recent ones that you've won. Yeah. I just actually won, because we're in Los Angeles specifically, but LA Business Journal's top marketers in LA. And that's, that's very nice because it was, we're obviously here in LA for one of our offices and we have some great LA clients and all the, the universities I attended were here in LA. So that's always great to have that on the local side. On the national side, I have been a part of the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year program a, a couple times and actually currently this year too. I had some 40 under 40 awards, you know, it's always <laughs> it's still under 40. And when I was first coming up, some rising star awards. And then now I have a collection of CEO, female CEO, you know, yeah. CEO of the year, things like that. You know, and I think I mentioned earlier, a lot of that is also just putting yourself out there and uh, looking at whatever awards that are out there and making sure uh, to... Keep that going, and and we do, meaning the submissions and things like that, and we do that obviously with our uh, creative work and agency work as well. We've also, as an agency, I'm really proud that we won um, some corporate social responsibility awards, uh, a ton of creative awards. So those are really the things that make me really most proud. Really, is more on the company side. Yeah. Congratulations, Thank <laughs> of you. course, uh -huh. to you and the business and winning so many awesome awards. What do you think is something most people don't understand about being a leader or being CEO of a company? I think sometimes people think that being a CEO is like yacht parties and champagne and red sports cars. <laughs> and for some people, it actually can be that. I do know some actually that have that type of life. But I think for the most part, and people who are really working you know, through it and uh, building companies, that it's a lot of hard work. And you have, and it's also consistent work. So you can't just drop in like one day or have this idea. It's, it's like diet and exercise. So it's, it's 80% execution and only 20% strategy. So you can be, you know, and that's actually what an MBA 
focuses on is really just the strategy part of it and not that much on the execution and operations. And so getting the execution and the operations right is absolutely critical to anything because you can have the greatest ideas ever, but they are absolutely worthless unless you can actually execute them. And so I think that's why it goes back to my kind of mission that I was on in terms of like operational excellence, because you have to figure out how to execute and operate to be able to bring things to fruition. And it is about consistency, meaning being there every day, making sure people deliver on things, that they're accountable, that you are that positive example yourself, that they're seeing you lead that. And because if a, if a CEO or any of the managers are inconsistent or uh, they're not preaching what they're doing, then the whole thing just falls apart. Yeah. And so I think that's why running a company or even on the operations side always sounds better than it is to a lot of people until they get into it because they realize how hard it is and how it's a day after day work of doing the same thing and building and doing it better and better. And it's not just dropping in having a great idea and out. Yeah. Because it just, that'll, it fails. Yeah. And it's also managing, it's not just managing people, it's also managing your own time. Yeah. So in order to execute properly, right, you really need to be able to manage your time properly. So right. how do you think about managing your time and what's something that, what advice would you give maybe to someone who maybe wants to be CEO or is in the operational role? What are some things that you do to stay organized and prioritize your time. Yeah, I'm a I'm a probably a pretty extreme example of that because my discipline is so innately strong. I still to this day go through every single one of my emails and I actually get them all down every day to only 30 in my inbox. So that means those are just like critical things that I have to deal with or like the next day. The others I have either dealt with or uh, filed in my like outlook system. In order for me personally to perform at the level I do with the amount of work and output, it's uh, extreme efficiency. And I can jam through so much work probably multiple times level of some outputs because I can just get through things so quickly because I'm so organized and can quickly respond and generate so much output. So for me, that is my personal way that I succeed. And also because the work-life balance, which is always something you're working on, but I have a, a young son, he's six. So I still try to be home every day to put him to bed. If I travel, they're tight turnaround trips. They're you know, 24 hours, which is exhausting on me, but that's just what you do, Yeah, you know? And I'm also managing the household and all of his stuff and the, the nannies and things like that. So it still always falls back, uh, all of that. And that's a probably difference also with the female leader a lot of times too. Yeah, definitely. Um, lots more on the plate, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> I was leaning towards or trying to see, you know, I think a lot of people don't talk about these like very specific things that you do as a leader that are actually like someone in the audience might be thinking like, oh, wow, that's a good idea. Files for my right. emails. Like never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, these are like basic things yeah, that basic. I think just because they're not really talked about and it's something we do as our own personal workflow in our right. own way that I was really curious. There's the people that kind of put 
the on their calendar boxes of activities to do right, right throughout their day to stay organized like oh now okay i got to change it up time to work on this so right, right. there's all these different types of ways people work and totally. i always love kind of diving in a little bit deeper on those so that people listening can say oh maybe i should try to do that yeah absolutely i'm happy to get into specifics so I do live and die by my outlook. <laughs> so if it doesn't, if it's not on outlook, it basically doesn't exist for me. <laughs> and that's a professional or even a personal appointment. So in terms of blocking out time, I actually don't do that because I don't even write lists down. I don't need to do lists because I, a lot of it is also because each day I have pretty much completed a hundred percent of, of my tasks. And so therefore I can start the next day totally fresh. And for me, if I'm even behind or I have some travel, but even while I'm traveling, I, that's just more work, right? Because I'm, I'm not letting myself get behind on those emails or the, or whatever it is. So that's why it can even be more exhausting, but why I can really perform at a high level every day is because I push myself every day to work and complete everything so that the next day I can start completely fresh. And if not, I would have been bogged down by the things that I was aware of that have not been completed. And I think that bogging down is an immense stress that can really wear people down and they can potentially become immobilized because it's just, if you have so much coming at you and, you know, there's not to say, I mean, it has happened before that I have gotten behind on things and it's a, that's a very uncomfortable feeling for me that I don't like to be in feeling behind or that I'm uh, have not cleared everything out. And so I, I work really hard to get myself out of that quickly. So I know that that's how I perform best, being completely clear and fresh every day. And that, so I'm by the end of the night, I have just a handful of emails in my inbox. By the time I wake up, I maybe have several hundred, but then I can start just on those, tackling those for, for the day. And I've uh, accomplished everything from the day before. Yeah, that's so true. Getting bogged down from days and days ago and, and playing ketchup, as you said, really creates a huge amount of stress. Yeah. So people out there that are currently feeling that, what are some things that you've done to get untied, basically? Yes. Yeah, so if you have the ability to also delegate certain responsibilities or things that you really don't need to be dealing with. So that's definitely key. Doing a a box assessment of the things that you're, if you have any type of uh, role where you have the ability to delegate the things that you like to do, that you're really good at, the things that you are, you know, good at, they don't like to do things like that. And kind of looking at that and really just trying to focus on the things that you're uh, really good at, you should be focusing on and delegating the things that you uh, are not, you know, so good at and don't like doing. So that's one part to help because then it should be easier for you to also tackle the things that you have to do. Mm -hmm. So delegating, unsubscribing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sometimes I spend a little part of my day almost every day and I'm like, how do I get on another list, you know? <laughs> so, but regardless, I still open, you know, every email and re respond to it. And also knowing the things that as you grow in whatever role that you're doing, that the things that you should be attending or participating or not. And we're, again, that's, that is still go back to delegating because at, at one point, I obviously was involved in every single client call, communication, shoot, things like that. And that took a while to wean myself off of because 
that was like my passion. I, you know, handled all the the clients of the agency. And then as I got more and more into the operations role and the uh, leadership role, CEO role, I had to, now I just go to like critical client dinners or, or meetings or things like that, but not every of them. So you have to start being uh, more careful about your time and where you spend your time. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I know we're, speaking of time, running out of time. Okay. <laughs> right on cue. <laughs> and so just real quick question, what's next for Hawthorne? Yeah, a lot of exciting stuff. International expansion. I've always had a, a passion for Asian, the Southeast Asian market. So just actually opened up a, a office in Hong Kong and we're looking at some business there. I think there's a lot of opportunity. And also just continuing our this path that we have of corporate social responsibility. I mean, that's a strong personal passion that I have. I'm also an ambassador for climate change trained by Alcor. So not only the company doing work to help better the world, but then also clients that we take on who have that mission and vision. That's the direction that continue to push into it. We have this ability with this company and the the medium of advertising and marketing to be able to get the message out to uh, millions, if not billions of people. So whatever that message is, it could really be a message for good. And that is something I'm, you know, continuing to, to push and explore what we can do there. Awesome. And what advice would you give for aspiring entrepreneurs or aspiring individuals that want to be in the CEO seat? Yeah, I would say... If you're in a company, a really good way, and one is what was obviously effective for me, but I've heard this from others, is that if, first of all, learn all parts of the business, start from the bottom. I'm, I'm a big advocate of starting from the bottom. I've basically done that wherever, right? <laughs> so know all parts of the business. And then if you have the ability to at some point transition to the operational side of the business and then be becoming maybe a COO after strong operations experience, that is a very natural stepping stone to becoming a CEO. Or, and or you, if you have an operational background, you can basically transfer to any type of company or business. So that is just a good, that's just a good platform to have. And it's also something good to have as people have some fear of what's going to happen, you know, in the age of AI and corporate leadership positions are going to be something that is going to be pretty innately uh, human. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank is you. There anything else that you want to share? Happy to be a part of it. And uh, it's been a fun journey and I'm not going anywhere for a while. <laughs> I'll continue working for the rest of my life. Now I, uh, no I, retirement. I love working. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what I would do with myself. <laughs> cool. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.